Hello and welcome to Two Young Drunks, a podcast by young people in recovery for young people in recovery. My name is Luke and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm Jamie. I'm an alcoholic too. And welcome to the show. Quick shout out if you guys are into recovery podcasts like ours. Um, we will shout out our friend Jessica Everett, who has a sobriety uh, podcast called Devil's Guide to Sobriety. Check it out on Instagram and Spotify. Shout out to Jess. I've been enjoying it recently. If you're anything like me, the rate I get through them, you can never have too many. Yeah. So yeah, check it out really for good. sure. So we have on this week our friend Meg. Meg, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on. So the interesting thing is we have seen each other over Zoom many a times. We've poured our hearts and souls out in meetings and yet we have never actually seen each other in person. That's a very 2021 kind of situation, isn't it? Very true. I was saying when, um, yeah, when I got in the car, I was just kind of, I got in and it was just like, hey, how you doing? Just not even clicking. I was like, this is the first time we've met each other because we've spent so many kind of online hours together. It just felt really natural. And we had to instantly face some um, some resentments because I was in someone's parking space, apparently. And ah. he was getting very um, mal- mouthy. Um, he wasn't happy, basically. Well, I just want to say there is no reserved parking spaces around here. Well, there wasn't outside his house either, but he didn't know that. Apparently. <laughs> Water under the bridge. Water <laughs> under the bridge. So we like to start off the same question each time. What have you had to face sober this week? Yes. So I've had such a busy week this week and I feel like I've had to face the whole thing sober. But um, one particular example was I went to a spoken word event last night um, and uh, I am a writer by trade and my writing started as a spoken word artist um, that I started doing as a hobby uh, and very much enjoyed. And it was very much wrapped up with my drinking. So before I would go on, or even when I was writing, it was kind of alcohol would lubricate the wheels, mm. it would quell the nerves. And then afterwards, it would just be like, oh my gosh, I performed. Now let's get absolutely wasted um, with a plethora of kind of whatever I could get my hands on, really. Um, and last night was the first time I'd gone to a spoken word event and there wasn't going to be alcohol before or after and I actually did struggle a little bit I'm not going to lie at the end when uh, the compare came on after the headliners and was like we're all going to be in the bar we're going to be having some drinks it's really sunny we'll be out the front having like come join have chats with us and I just knew in my heart of hearts I was like I can't stick around because I don't I don't feel strong enough not to um and that was kind of it was tough but I was with my housemate who was incredible for my recovery um and I think she could sense it because she didn't even say she wasn't even like should we stick around for a drink it was very much kind of like we chatted to one of the poets um connected with them and then we just left but it was a real sadness about that actually Mm -hmm. um but it felt great again it was just for that day I just had to do it for that day and I did it and now it doesn't feel such a massive mountain and potentially it can be something part of my life again with mm. my sobriety. It doesn't need, I don't need to be this tortured artist that writes about, can I swear? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. That writes Go about like <laughs> fucking and drinking and drugs and, you know, oh, I'm just so tortured. Um, I can still write about that kind of stuff because I still live that stuff. Mm. Um, but I don't have to be still living it. Mm. Um, 
So I feel I woke up this morning and was very grateful for that. How do you find those situations? Like what is what's your fear normally? Like, I mean, is there anything you sort of fixate about? Because the first few times I was in that situation, I think for me, the fear isn't always around the alcohol. It's like socializing. It's just like the fear of not having a crutch to socialize. That's that's so interesting. That's such a good question. Um, I'm quite fortunate that I can still kind of socialize without alcohol. I think the fear would definitely be, I guess, yeah, no, no, I think you're totally right. Yeah, part of the socializing, I'd feel like an odd one out that I wasn't drinking um, when probably no one would actually notice. No one knows what you've got in your glass. Um, but definitely the fear... The fear is of taking it too far, mm. but it, and, and like, and just that thought of every time it was always, I would end up at a party back at mine. Everyone who was at the event would be back at my house, um, and there'd always be drugs, and that's where a real anxiety and fear comes from. It. It's almost kind of like flashbacks to those things happening, and I think I really kind of hurt my kind of progression with the spoken word through alcohol initially yeah. i think there's people i've met along the ro road who could have been really beneficial in a great network but are actually like she's a little bit too much <laughs> <laughs> but how good is it to be at the point where you can make that decision because it's such a journey from like no no knowing you're in a situation where you have to leave or it could be a threat to you that can sound or it's easy to frame that as like a weakness. Like, oh, I still can't handle this situation. But to get to that point where you know you can't stick around is the hardest part of the journey. Because how many, I'm sure I can speak for us all when I say, how many parties do we go to that we knew that, but we we're like, oh, may as well not even try then. May as well not even try to stay away from it. Or we gave into it. But knowing now that we have to leave, that's progress. Yeah, exactly. And knowing that it was just when kind of I talk about the fear and being like, oh, no, I've got to get out of here. It was a very like fleeting moment and I definitely felt I'm at that point now where I'm more in control of it um and it is kind of it is a it is a panic but it's like a managed panic whereas before it would have been like oh my god blind panic I can't handle this and I potentially would have acted out in another way like I'd have overeaten or I would have just acted out another of my addictions like hit onto online shopping or something like that whereas I kind of felt a panic left the situation by the time I got home it was nothing yeah I like that a managed panic, managed panic. <laughs> that's good I've not heard that one before I feel like that's my life at this point <laughs> <laughs> perpetual managed panic <laughs> so I have a question about your writing mm -hmm. do you find that you're writing without drinking do you find it harder to access that part of you that is more sad or more happy? Oh, good point. Um, well, my writing kind of, I never earned money as a spoken word artist, but when I started earning money as it was as a playwright. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually haven't written a play since I've got into sobriety which I hadn't really considered. I've got lots of ideas and lots of kind of pitches. I've written it. I've moved very much into the personal essay side of things. Um, and to access, yeah, that's that sad part of me. I guess there is because there's such a romanticization and such a stereotype of writers um, that like the Charles Bukowski style of things yeah, yeah. where they, you know, I can still access the sadness like easily definitely yeah. but I haven't been challenged to in such a way because I think my emotive writing was definitely more in the plays which I'm going to start tackling now kind of theatres are opening up again um but it was actually like it was through my writing I realized okay I need to get sober because I was writing a blog about mental health and my experiences and it was kind of writing it to let people know every time I was doing a geographical that I was still alive 
and I, there's actually a blog article in it going I'm got to readdress my drinking and then it's just totally veered off much more into talking about the addiction side of things because my addictions are such a massive part my mental health is still very much what my mental health is but the addiction was a real cause of effect on things that were going wrong so a question I asked Andy last week which I found really interesting his answer to it was did it did your realization that you had to change your drinking come from an external force or an internal force and it sounds like what from what you just said that rather than uh, a friend uh, the police like Andy said yeah. or anyone else <laughs> telling you you had to you kind of discovered it with through your own writing I think definitely I think because I was so good at running away I was so good if I got a hint of somebody caring too much about how I lived my life I was very good at putting miles between me and that person space and distance between that person you mean catching on to your sort of addiction Yeah. yeah yeah um and I had friends that were kind of very aware but I was very good at changing up who I was drinking with in the week and you know, people would make comments. Oh, if I wanted a big night out, I'd go out with you, Meg. Not realizing that I had about 10 different people mm -hmm. that I could go to that for. So if somebody, yeah, was catching on a little bit too much that I was kind of maybe doing it a bit too much, I had plenty of people that I could change in. And so, yeah, so it was internal because I, I was actually in Portugal. I'd done a geographical to Portugal being like, I'm just going to go and live the surf life and ride COVID out and just be really cool. And it got to a point where I wasn't really surfing. I found the underground party scene. I was hanging out with people we didn't even speak much of the same language, but we had a shared love of drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And I was like, this is really dangerous. You'll always it, sniff it out. Yeah, always, <laughs> always wherever you are. Ever, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you want it, you'll get it. <laughs> yeah, completely. So it was definitely internal in that respect. So how long did your Portugal stint last? Well, it was meant to be like a long time. And I think I had to pull the plug and come home after maybe two and a half months so it was it was a long holiday in the end it wasn't it wasn't anything it was meant to be is that when you decided to get sober then when you came back or in no, Portugal I was out in Portugal um and it had one of many horrible benders out there and then it ended up um with I'd, we'd gone on this bender and then we'd got like loads of cocaine throughout it and then the end of this bender we'd got more cocaine and I was like I just basically panicked and was like, I need to get out of here. And this was down in Eshmeriz. I was living in Porto, which is about an hour away. And I was like, I just need to get out of here. But I made sure I took my booze and my cocaine with yeah, me, like without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Got home and then was like, had a really horrible hangover. And then I think it was the day after I'd had the horrible hangover because I didn't drink on the horrible hangover. I was like, well, this, this deserves a reward, which is sniffing half a gram of cocaine to myself in my room. Yes. That was my addiction there. Yeah. <laughs> it's... It, yeah and I, yeah no I'm sure you can relate and you just you reason it at the time yeah. oh I'm just gonna have this one. Oh, just one more I'll just oh you know it's just a little add to the night well people drink on their own like why can't why can't we use on their own someone uh, mentioned to me 12-step recovery meetings were online and I was like oh okay so opened my my lovely laptop that luckily I still had and um and searched it and then yeah and stumbled into a meeting that was 2,000 miles away from where I actually was and then yeah the rest is history. I mean I can't imagine coming in during during the COVID and like just because my first face-to-face -face meeting was like so important like I I mean it was terrifying but like I felt really held I mean was that a similar experience to you? 
Completely, Natalie. Um, and that's, that's a great comment because it's very similar to a conversation that I was having um, this week. I honestly don't think if 12-step recovery had not gone online, I, that I'd be sat here today. Because I, I call myself a walking contradiction, but I think I'm about to explain something that's probably very common. Come across very confident, can kind of hold my own, but I suffer so much with anxiety about how people perceive me and the thought of going to somewhere for the first time has stopped me doing so many things because I'm absolutely terrified and I've still only now gone to one face-to-face meeting and even then I went with a friend and even then I was just like just a bag of nerves and I just I love the comfort of Zoom and I think I didn't thrive because nobody did but in so many aspects of lockdown that I could do from my bedroom. I was like, this is wonderful. So having the opportunity to log in from thousands of miles away and log in to and connect with people that have been so integral to my recovery. And I thank them on the daily, the reason that, you know, why I'm sat here and why I can't recover. And it's wonderful when I hear about people's stories with face to face, because, you know, it sounds lovely and I'm really looking forward to it. But I yeah if it hadn't been online there was no way I was ever going to take myself to a face-to-face meeting just off the back I didn't even know about the phone line like there's a that that you could ring people and ask them about it before I'd been in a recovery program for a few months um which if I had known it might have been a bit different Mm -hmm. but yeah no the online thing was sweet for me (laughs) I mean and did you just manage to stop like did you go to a meeting and then that was it like, and you just never picked up or... Unfortunately not. No, how was that? I mean, because that's what I think for me was the important, like how I found face-to-face is because like when I stopped, you know, I was going through withdrawal and, you know, it was just so, you know, I was just being pulled towards it still. It's just so hard. And like just the being able to leave the house and like go and be with these people and speak to them was like how I, I just didn't pick up. Like I can Im- imagine like Zoom, that's, a, you know, it's an hour a day, really. Like, you know, obviously if you want to do more, but the time around that, it must have been like agonizing. I think you're, yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head and you've actually brought me to a thought that I've never had before. I think potentially if I had had the confidence to drag myself to a face to face and they had been around, potentially my story might be a little bit different. But no, my story is littered with relapses. So kind of came into the rooms, very much went out again over Christmas um, and was just because I ended up coming back from Portugal and moving into my late mother's house Mm. to get it ready for sale. And I didn't know anyone in the area. I we were on we were in tier. Was it tier five or tier four, whichever was the highest tier? So nothing was open. There was no gyms. There was no coffee shops. It was literally like you could kind of order delivered food. But that was it. Yeah. Yeah. and so, yeah, so I just got back there. It was so much to deal with and just kind of started drinking again and then came back into the rooms. But yeah, and Zoom actually really enabled me to be kind of a wallflower. And I'd go to a meeting on Mondays and that would be the only one. And then I would now, I know the phrase, white knuckle it for yeah. the rest of the week. And then I learned about sponsorship and home groups and things like that. And it slowly crept in. Um, and I have had slip ups in between that, I've said to people they've been quite boring relapses because yeah. I was a real like could nail three bottles of wine, coke, just like anything and everything. And yeah. it was always impressive how much I could drink. And then my last kind of few relapses I've had have been like two glasses of wine. <laughs> but I'll say to people they're a boring relapse. But when I look and reflect on them, I end up going to bed crying and being like, you need to kill yourself. Yeah. Like 
um, which, and I've tried that many, many times. Um, so it's, my mental health is life-threatening and drinking is life-threatening to me. So you say it's a boring relapse and it's two glasses of wine, but I don't think anyone calls it a boring evening of drinking, having two glasses of wine and going to bed suicidal being like, what are people going to think? Like, what's this person going to say at my funeral? And it's like, that's just not normal. I think what you said about not being anything special, like just a couple glasses of wine, my last drink was nothing special. But to me, that encapsulates exactly what most of my drinking was like, you know, yeah, there was the big binges and the, and the constant cycles of, um, cycles of depravity. But ultimately that last night I had a drink and I haven't had a drink since was just me sat on my own in the flat. Obviously my my girlfriend was there, but I was, I'd taken myself off, not just physically, but mentally. And it was just drinking beer, nothing wild, but that's what my life had become and what my life was destined to be. If I carried on drinking was nothing crazy. The wild parties were being left behind more and more slowly. It was just me sat there quote unquote boring drinking but that's what it does to us and that's what makes us alcoholics completely yeah just yeah you hit the nail on the head it's that isolation even though I'm calling them boring relapses they've all been incredibly isolated and even though I've had that voice in my head going come on reach out there's people there for you like even my sponsor messaged me um one night when I was literally driving to the shop and I was like, I'm just going to ignore that. Yeah. And it's like the whole world is telling me like there's people to reach out, but it, I get into such that isolated thought that no one cares. No one gives a shit. Um, you don't deserve it. That's the main thing. You don't deserve recovery. Um, and then, yeah. And then just spiral, like you say, into this, you take yourself off mentally and that's exactly kind of what it is. But then ultimately that's the powerlessness that we all, we all have as alcoholics. It's the addiction talking. I mean, in my relapses, like I, you know, I, I remember, so I came into recovery like a while ago, but I, d- I didn't stay sober. And I had my first lapse, actually. Um, actually, one of them, you know, like I had this opportunity. I knew like calling my sponsor was like, but he'll just stop me, you know, and I just knew. and I, But he'll just stop me. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want him to stop me. You know, I wasn't ready. So I just I just ignored that phone call. And I just just went for it. Yeah, exactly that. I've had a, exactly the same thought process and the exact same actions. So where are you up to in your step work? So I completed step eight last oh. week. So I'm on step nine. Ah, the best step. The Fun. best, the, <laughs> the roll best the best steps. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's tough. Uh, bless my sponsor because I am just stubborn and I can hear myself being stubborn and it's like, you've got to stop. For step eight, we did a walk a, uh, walk a mile letters. Have you guys heard of those? No. no. So you have your harms list and you have to write a letter from every single person on your harms list to yourself from their perspective mm-hmm. to try and get an understanding of what they might say when you make amends to understand like how they made you feel. And I was, and I really didn't want to fucking do it. Yeah. And I was just like, and I'd do it and I'd be so grumpy, like typing it away <laughs> just being like, don't, no, I don't see the point of this. You know what? I'm never going to do this with my sponsees. And now it's done. I'm like, oh no, I see the point of it now. Yeah. yeah. Um, you talk a lot about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, part, part of me, like the part of recovery that is, um, it's been hard is like this awakening to myself, I suppose. Um, and I mean, it's a very dangerous area to talk about but what do you think in terms of how your addiction and your mental health you know obviously they go hand in hand in some ways but do you think that there's any sort of differences now great question um 
because I have met people in rooms and in life in recovery who have been like, as soon as I got sober, my mental health disappeared. I got yeah. diagnoses for this and diagnoses for this. And they and they went. Um, and when I was a newcomer, well, when I was a, I'm still a newcomer, but when I was like very first in the rooms and I had that in the first few shares, I was like, oh my God, this is going to solve all of solve life's everything. problems. Yeah. But I've had to face up to the reality. And that's been, that's been tough as well to be like, um, okay, now I'm sober, but I still have ADHD. I still have borderline personality disorder. ADHD. Hey, hey high five. High five. I feel left out now. <laughs> you probably have it too. I'm not going to lie. And yeah, and I still have BPD. I still get really bad anxiety. I still get social anxiety. It's never going to take away that I've had, you know, anorexia and bulimia and eating disorders for a really long point mm. in my life. Um, and I still very much have that thinking. I still have severe body dysmorphia. Um, and I always kind of was like sobriety is going to be the magic wand that solves everything because I once I thought when alcohol is the magic wand I even used to say oh red wine cures all I used yeah. to look forward to like a come down after a festival of just getting hammered on red wine because yeah, it's the band-aid yeah <laughs> that's what yeah. I would do too um and then I was just so kind of not ignorant, but I was so of this view. I was like, well, sobriety is going to solve everything. And I'm going to be, yeah. I'm going to be two foot taller and I'm going to be slim and beautiful and have everything. And it's like, well, it's not, you still have the mental health, but I just have a better toolkit of dealing with it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't rely on substances. I don't exacerbate my mental health. I feel mental health is a part of my life and it comes and goes. And part of me now almost not enjoys no enjoys I'm going to use that word the ebbs and flows of my mental health because I'm not numbing it with alcohol and I can understand it like okay here we go it's a depressive mode going on that's cool I'm not going to fight it let it happen put the toolkit into place and I'm just going to ride it out knowing that I'm probably not going to end up in a mental health institution by the end of this so long as I don't pick up a drink and that's great and that I'm grateful for every single day my experience I don't know about you but my experience was I think um, I've noticed now like anxiety is my thing. And like, I am just continually learning myself like throughout this whole process. Like, I mean, looking back to how I was too, even in like my first year of recovery, like everything is completely changing. And now I'm starting to understand. I'm like, Oh God, that's, that's actually anxiety. That's another layer of anxiety. I, I really am anxious. Like, wow, like certain routines and like all this stuff. I'm just like having a new relationship with anxiety, I'd say. Yeah. And like, I think that has always just been the sort of, especially like social anxiety. It's always just been sort of the catalyst for me. And um, I mean, I kind of, I kind of relate, to, I guess, to what some people say is when they came in, they're kind of, I'd say like depression hasn't always really been a thing for me. And it's like very situational. Mm -hmm. So if something happens, like I still feel like I'm learning what my emotions can do and so like I felt really low lows but then really high highs yeah um but you know I'd say my de like depression hasn't really been a thing for me you know since since coming since being sober yeah you know it's just like a new relationship with anxiety completely um and yeah I I can really identify with what you're saying whilst I have kind of my depressive episodes I tend to be angry and isolated but they're not they're not like the depression bouts that I'd have when I was drinking where I literally couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. Um, they'd just be more, it's more kind of obsessive thoughts and negative thinking and feeling 
catastrophizing and thinking this is never going to end. I'm always going to feel shit. I'm always going to feel like this. It's really fucking stupid. You're an idiot for trying to make yourself better Mm. rather than that absolute black dog, dark cloud that drinking used to bring. Um, But it's interesting. I don't think it's anything that you guys would identify with, but something um, that I've really started to quite like is my hormonal cycle. Okay. Like I know (laughs) this sounds quite odd, but you probably, you'll have female listeners that might be able to identify with this, but, noticing how different you feel through the month and then like there's apps to track fucking everything these days and yeah. I have it to track to track that as well and I'll get notifications going you might feel sluggish today because you're in your luteal phase or um progesterone is rising therefore you might feel this way and I'm like god damn it I am and in all my 30 years on the planet I never had any idea what my hormones were doing I yeah. had never no idea what was going on in my body I was just kind of like drinking and drugging to just medic- medicate any slight change out mm-hmm. of numbness. Now, something I find quite interesting about Meg, you probably won't know this, as someone who, uh, me I'm talking about now, as someone who gained a lot of weight through sitting on my ass and doing nothing while drinking, Meg managed to work as a personal trainer while being an active alcoholic. Wow. And having... <laughs> and and I'm sure you've got, I'm sure you've got interesting things to tell us about that. And to follow that up with a question you've had a, an array of jobs over your, through your drinking. Do you think that that was influenced by your drinking? And do you think your choice of career will change now that you don't drink? Completely. We talk about geographicals with location. I would do it with careers. Um, and I think also my ADHD has a part to play yeah. in that. Yeah. Like I'll hyperfixate and I'll get very obsessed with something and I'll be like, I'm going to be the best at this. Yeah. And then Think if I about- don't succeed immediately... I would drink my sorrows away, probably push myself further back in the career track and then find something else new and shiny. So I think it was like a melting pot of everything. Um, But definitely. And I think it was kind of, and I was very much trying to people please and be like, my dad wants me to do this. Society wants me to do this. My girl, my ex-girlfriend wants me to do this. Oh, my ex-boyfriend wants me to do this. You know, it's kind of just being pulled all in which way and I decided to pick incredibly competitive careers um Mm. which don't really go well with being a drinker particularly acting unless you know you know people in the industry to help you out because it's such hard work and my hat goes off to you know all my friends and my colleagues who are still working in the acting industry because it's so tough Mm. um and the ones that are doing quite well at it and getting the jobs and sticking at it don't really drink Mm. um I don't know if that's causation and effect or if that's anything to do with it, but you know, they're just driven and they're just focused and they know what Mm. they want to do. And that's their priority. Whereas drinking was always my priority. And I became a personal trainer because actors don't earn a lot of money. Mm. They always say, get a second job. And I was like, always was always kind of into fitness. And I was like, well, I'll train to be a personal trainer because instead of working a bar job, like other actors do and earning 10 pounds an hour, I can earn 60 pounds an hour doing this. Mm. So I can work less, drink more, Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. So oh God. it wasn't until the gyms reopened in April that I first stood foot in a gym, not hung over or drunk. Wow. And I was like, and I had a successful business. I did well as a personal trainer, but like I'd be teaching a core class at six o'clock in the morning. Like, oh my God. I'm just going to, I'm just going to correct form guys, <laughs> like rather than kind of, but yeah, it was, I, I looking back, I don't know how I did it. People must've known. They must have known. Yeah. But I was I was lucky I got away with it. I was very good at very good at masking it, very good at hiding it. But I did let people down a lot. I, if I ever scheduled a client on a Saturday morning, 
they were getting cancelled yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. And I always had very good reasons as to why I had to reschedule. And I was always very forgiving. The amount of free hours I'd give out. Oh, I'll, I'll put another another session on your block that you've bought. Mm. And to them, they're like, oh, this is great. And mm. I get a line on a Saturday. Whereas, you know, I'm kind of still stumbling around the streets of London with a bottle of wine in hand thinking, thank God I haven't got to go to the gym today. <laughs> um, I would not advise. No, would no. Not advise. I'm impressed. I honestly am. Um, some of the hangovers that I, well, I I had a hangover every single day. Yeah. So I can imagine just going in straight into exercise. It was the lies as well that came around it. Like, and the lies would get more and more elaborate. Yeah. Like something had happened and I was waiting for a police report or um, the amount of times, yeah, that, I mean, I my mum did die, but the amount of times she was really sick and I had to get to her when I wasn't, mm. I was lying in bed, hungover. Mm. Um that is just so shameful to look back on now. And it was just, I was so lucky to be surrounded by lovely, forgiving people who were so willing to just take my lie. And I just did not care and was happy to lie about it. And mm. it's just, it's awful. And so it's all at the forefront now with step nine that I'm doing. So, well, we've all been there. I've yeah. lied many times, especially <laughs> to work. Mm. Uh, I think even obviously being a personal trainer is one that takes quite an impressive amount of um shielding how you're really feeling inside and what you've been up to but i think we all did that to a certain extent you know i might have just been sat in an office um towards the end of my drinking going in every day just like absolutely dead behind the eyes but even that i'm like how did anyone still not notice that yeah you know i think it was harder in an office job if i'm honest now you say that I had an office job that were aware of my drinking yeah. and, but they kind of thought it was funny. You I was just a secretary. Smell, you know, <laughs> I turned you up drunk. You could sweat it out. I turned yeah. up drunk on my birthday and they were like, oh, I'll go home and sent me home with a bottle of Prosecco. Wow. I mean, it was just like, it was a temp job. So I didn't take it seriously. I didn't, they took me seriously. But I think with being the PT, like, again, it's that I can move, I can mm. make distance and, and all that kind of things. Whereas sitting at a desk, you're a little bit, it's a little bit more obvious. You kind of can't change it up as much. I was a teaching assistant wow. in a, a school of kids with learning disabilities and autism. And I used to turn up to work. <laughs> Absol- I hope no one, I hope no one I used to work with listens to this, but I used to turn up to work just absolutely fucked. Yeah. Like people must've known, like I used to look in like the car windows and my eyes looked like, just like they were being squeezed out, like, yeah. and I just read. And then I used to <laughs> just like, these parents would drop these kids off and I was just there to greet them and just being like, I have to say, I, you know, I, like, I really did like work hard at my job yeah. and like, I really did like by 12 o'clock I was fine. Yeah. <laughs> but like that first morning, like I'd just sitting, singing like songs in like a circle to like little kids with yes. learning disabilities and just shaking oh, and gosh, like sweating yeah. and like, I don't know how they didn't say say anything to me. I'm like, I must have smiled. But. Must have done. But I, it's interesting. I think some of my friends at The Biggest Records are all teachers. Really? Yeah. And I remember one, it was kind of just after uni. Um, and one, I think it was New Year. And I had a friend who was very responsible. And they got a job as head of French. And I remember just at New Year's sitting in their room taking MDMA with them. And I was like, I can't believe I'm getting wrecked with a teacher. And she was like, you need it to deal with the fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, on it, like every weekend, all summer, all Easter. Um, so maybe you weren't alone. Maybe there was other people at it. Uh, maybe, maybe. You never know. But anyway, I, 
I don't do that these days. No. And that's the relief. That's the main <laughs> that's point. That's such a relief. I could relate to something you were saying before about the actors that you noticed were successful were the ones that didn't drink. Because I am someone who, I grew up, my, my dad was a sound engineer, among other things. And I went to a lot of festivals, not just as a kid, but when I got a bit older with him. And I think he always knew really that I drank too much and took too many drugs. And he would always kind of make a, he would always point out to me that the people that were A, still there the next year round and B, successful and C, happy were the people that didn't take drink or drugs. And he was never like, you should never, you know, you can, you can drink and he didn't tell me I could take drugs, but he knew he couldn't tell me not to and I wouldn't. It didn't work like that, you know, but it, he always made a point of, of pointing out to me that, you know, it just it isn't compatible. And part of my journey of recovery is accepting that I always wanted to be a musician, you know, but what I can see now is that I could never have been surrounded by that as a full-time lifestyle. Like me and that lifestyle were just never going to work. So it helps me with acceptance. Now music is still a massive part of my life. Something I enjoy. I don't perform as much as I used to. Maybe hopefully one day again, that will come around, but yes, it will. (laughs) Yeah, it will. But I know I'm at peace with the fact that it would never have happened. It It would have never made me happy, you know? And now I can slowly introduce it. I'm hoping to go to a festival or two this this summer now. And I know that it's going to be a challenge. Like we've discussed this before, Mm, me and Jamie. Yeah, Um, many times. Yeah. But I know that no matter what happens now, before I take a drink, I'll get out of there. You know, I'll have an exit plan. On that point, have you got any events coming up that you think, I mean, you said you went to Spoken Word Poetry last night. Is that Mm -hmm. as exotic as it gets for now? Or have have you got grand plans? I think so. I think so, definitely. I went to my first like record party on the weekend um, and stayed sober, and it was probably the best party I've ever been to. Wreckhead party or like, record. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. People Wreck were like, head. people yeah. were like getting on it. Oh god! Um, but the person whose birthday it was is a very good friend of mine and was amazing beforehand and was like, look, there's going to be a few people there not drinking, but they're not in a program. They yeah. they just don't drink mm. because they don't need to. Um, there's gonna be a couple people there that aren't drinking. How are you around people who are? Um, and I just, I really wanted to go. And I was just like, I was like, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Mm. And then I was driving down and I was like, right. Okay. Just for today. And I said to myself in the car when I was driving down, Meg, if you don't drink at this party tonight, you can have a beer in the morning. I promise you don't drink at this party tonight. You can have a beer in the morning. By the time the morning rolled round, and I'd had such a funny night, like just mixing with my friends as they are so silly and kind of drunk, but then none of them were belligerent, like getting in the hot tub. And then at 1am being like, oh, lads, I'm, I'm going to go to bed yeah. and going to bed and having a night's sleep. And then waking up at nine o'clock in the morning without hangover and making a mocktail. I didn't want that beer, mm. but it was like a bargain that I'd made with myself. And I'm, it might not be the right bargain for everyone, but it's just about bringing that just for today. If as soon as I do that bigger thinking of like, oh my God, I'm never going to get wrecked at a party again. That's when I start to panic. And that's, that has brought on relapses before. Whereas if I'm just like, you'll drink in the future, Meg, you'll party again in the future, but just for today, you're not just. And every day I read the just for today card. Yeah. Every single day. Um, and I've really, and that's just been exponentially useful to me. So, so I feel like with certain people, parties and stuff, I'm quite happy to attend. 
festivals I'm probably going to leave it until next year and I'm hopefully going to start going to festivals and go in a spoken word or performance capacity Mm. rather than I would go and spend four days there and maybe sleep maybe four hours of it Mm. and then cry the whole way home I've missed half the artists that I wanted to see um I had one Glastonbury that I was working and I got so unbelievably wrecked on the Monday and Tuesday staff nights um, and the Wednesday as well, that by the time the festival came around, I was just, I was ruined. Mm. And I was just taking cocaine and passing out in the middle of the field. And the list of people that I'd wanted to see that I'd got on my EE app, just missed them all. Mm. Um, And so to go to a festival and to actually like see who I want to see and it not being about the drugs and alcohol, them being in a, like, I was always like, no, I, you know, I always want them to be, be an accompaniment to the festival. And the festival's all about whittling spoons and going and seeing some weird, crazy acts in some dark corner. It wasn't, it was totally for me. It was like, right, how much, how many drugs can I get in my system? How drunk can I get? Yeah, yeah. And um, while my friends were like dressing up and looking cool, like I just didn't, yeah, I'll stick a bit of glitter on my face. Don't care. Like as I'm trying to sniff this line. Um, and so I know that they're going to be a very big hurdle. Yeah, well, uh, to be fair, like I, um, I think I'm looking at them with a little slightly rose-tinted glasses in terms of what you said. I'm going to go see this, these uh, all the weird little things that are going on, and I'm going to enjoy every act I want to. And in reality, it will be like that, but it will be some kind of happy medium between where it used to be and where it is now. In terms of some of it will be a, a struggle. I'll see people sniffing lines of ketamine, and I will be jealous. But then you'll see them at 3 a.m. face down in the dirt and you'll be yes. like, really glad I didn't do that earlier. Yeah. yeah. And it's, on the point of yeah. the record part you were saying, I think that's quite brave because I'll be honest, where I'm at currently, and maybe this will change, I can go out with my friends and even if it's you know, like out in the pubs or whatever or a kind of at someone's house. But once the once the drugs come, I, that, I, had, I have to leave. It's yeah. my time to go because even though drinking was my main problem, really, drugs are a massive part of it and... For me, I think it's imagining that instant hit. I can't deal with that. I can't deal with imagining that. I have to I have to leave. Totally. And yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think for me, it was definitely the, it, the people really made that feasible for me. I, um, I never thought I would have been able to have gone to kind of a party like that. So yeah, no, I totally agree what you mean. And I think looking back on it in hindsight, I think if I'd said to my sponsor what the party was going to be, she'd have been like, you're not going. I'm like, I'm just going to Canterbury for a friend's birthday. It's mm. going to be very lovely and sunny. Um, but I was actually, you know, in that situation. See, I I don't really go to that many things like that. I think for me, I have to really be in the right mindset because I kind of, I tried. And I think like for me, I was, when I first, when I came in, especially this is before I, I relapsed too. I, you know, I just didn't want to give up the lifestyle. I just thought I can do this sober. I can do it. But I have so much more healing to do to really be in a state where I feel comfortable and I can go to events, I can do things and, you know, I can, I can, you know, I can go and I can not think about drugs or alcohol and speak to people. But I am also wary of setting myself up to fail, not in the sense of a relapse, but it's the sense of setting myself up to fail in terms of my thinking. Mm -hmm. Because if I feel overly uncomfortable or if I get into my head I can quickly scare myself away into thinking that this is something I can't do. And that can just bring on a spiral of negative thinking. So like for me, I'm just, I'm taking like the really slow approach back into it. I mean, I, I went to a festival when I was six months sober my first time around 
and it was difficult. I, I really like. I found it. You know, I, I went to a few acts that I liked, and like for me, the music starts. That's that's what I love so much, and like that's that's great, and like there's a sense of euphoria and all that stuff. But when the minute the minute the music stops, you know, I'm in a crowd of people who are incredibly unpredictable. You know, and like I'm so much more aware of my surroundings than I ever was before because I was always just so out of it that I just never noticed how like scary drunk people and people on drugs can be. Like you just don't know what they're gonna do, and I I just really struggled. Like I was like, and I just like, but having like having a backup plan or escape is like just a necessity. Yeah. Like I don't think I'll do things that are overnight unless I have. Um, have like a good plan or I won't do things that are too far away if I need to, if, if it's going to be a big session or things like that, because it's just like, I'm still just learning like how to like socialize again with people yeah. because like, there's still just like a barrage of negative overthinking that like can sometimes just really, really affect me. Like how I socialize with people and I'll just be like, and I think lockdowns too not not help has not helped that very much. Yeah, it's like, but it is it's desensitization. You know, it's what a lot of people first told me when I came in is like, is like, you know, going to gigs in Bristol and things like that. It's absolutely fine, but like, just slowly introducing yourself into that world is is kind of the safest option, at least for me. Definitely. I totally agree with you. And I think I've missed out some really key points about my weekend. Um, I think it just sounds like, yeah, that I kind of just went to a party and everything was fine and you guys can do it too. (laughs) But it was my friend that messaged me beforehand. We were at his parents' house, but he has a flat down the road and he had mentioned, he goes, if it gets too much, you can go to my flat. Yeah. So I had that exit exit strategy. strategy, And because I felt safe and because it was a day thing predominantly and a lot of the people had actually kind of left by half 10 11 o'clock at night that it had definitely had a different feel so mm. I think as you're saying if it had been more an overnight thing and it was just then there was just the group of us that were staying mm. that were just chilling in the hot tub um and I felt very kind of safe I don't think it's not going to start becoming like yeah a weekly event at all mm. um and yeah and kind of you describing that festival you're so right that people are, are unpredictable and being around people that you don't know yeah and it was just it was yeah. a lot. Some girl like on Mandy came up and spoke to me and I was like, just leave me alone. <laughs> just stop. Yeah. I just don't like this. I was like, I like looked like just so anxious. And I was just like, I, knew, I saw her coming out my eye as well. I was like, don't speak to me. Don't speak to me. Don't speak to me. And she came right up to me. Just it was just, B-line. yeah. I was Were like, you the only sober one of your tribe? No, I was actually with, so I have my sister and her boyfriend in recovery and I was actually with them and, um, like even having them there i think it was just it was just too early for me mm-hmm. you know like seeing people on drugs i was like and festival i just were my thing i just loved festivals so much yeah you just enter like a lawless four days of just like Hedonism. i can snort mandy for breakfast and <laughs> no one cares <laughs> yeah i love that i loved it i was like i can just i remember my friends would be like meg you've got to at least eat breakfast i was like no fucking don't <laughs> i can do what i want <laughs> I, I remember even I even had to hide my alcoholism like at festivals with my friends. Like I remember one time, like this is the most ridiculous thing I've probably ever done. I do you know in like festivals where you couldn't take glass in, so you had to like pour yep. like vodka into like a plastic bottle. I remember like being really worried that my friends would notice me being the first one drinking because I just was like I can't socialize with anyone until I've had a drink. So I pretended to like drink this and chug it and be like that's not water <laughs> just like and i knew i knew it was vodka just because i was so scared of people being like he's the first one drinking what an alcoholic 
And the thought process that we have, probably no one else would have given like two thoughts about it. They'd be like, oh, like they're at a festival or not even really been like, mm. like, what are you drinking? But it's our alcoholic brains being like, I, it's the addict in us going, I need to keep this secret. This is mm. just between me and you, it's even though we're in amongst shame. everyone. Shame. Accumulation of shame that you just like carry around with you everywhere. That's just like, just almost just trickles out. It's just, and then the idea of anyone just like, seeing me for what i was was just too overbearing oh gosh yeah so meg we like to finish with the final possibly the most important question what would you say to the newcomer that walked in the room tomorrow what i would say to them so i would say to them find your tribe um and in that i mean people that you identify with they don't need to be the same age group as you they don't need to be the same gender as you but I would recommend initially sticking to the same gender um but just knowing as well that friends that you make in recovery aren't going to last forever there was something that I really struggled with when I came into the rooms I was like I ha- people would share they're like the friends that you make in recovery are the best friends you make in your entire life so I was as somebody who struggled my entire life maintaining friendships and maintaining relationships I was like fucking sweet I'm going to have loads of new best friends. Everyone's going to love me. We're all perfect people. We're all wonderful and healed. And that's not the case. You all have different needs. You all have, you know, different beliefs. And whilst you might start as friends, it might not always kind of last as friends. Um, And I've had to readdress certain meetings and groups that I've been around that haven't served my mental health particularly well and have put me in actually quite uncomfortable situations and I'm like right well I need to focus on my recovery so what do I need to do here and I was like so I just need to step away from that group I need to step away from that person I need to step away from sharing those type of things in those kind of circles and putting potentially kind of that version out there if that makes sense um and slowly but surely I'm just yeah really finding a tribe of people that I really really trust and really believe in and they're all they're all very eclectic and all very all very different but um but yeah definitely found find your tribe and be selfish that's what I'm saying be selfish about it like be giving and be loving to everybody that you meet in recovery but don't feel that you need to be everyone's best friend and don't expect everyone to be your best friend amazing so Meg where can people find you if they want to read more of your writing Amazing. So I have got a website, which is www.megundressed.com. Uh, I have my clothes on, don't worry. It's figuratively. Uh, and my Instagram is at megundressed as well. Nice. And while we're on the topic, our Instagram is at two young drunks. Go give us a follow. We'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to email in, if you're new in recovery, an old timer, anywhere in between, and you want to get in touch about anything, it's two young drunks. That's T W O young drunks at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you again, Meg. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Meg. Lovely. And evening. we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.